We're about to enter year three of the coronavirus, and yeah. More than 800,000 Americans have lost their lives to COVID-19, and it's not done with us yet. The Omicron coronavirus variant is keeping a jittery world off kilter. President Biden is making a plea to the unvaccinated as the Omicron variant of the coronavirus spreads. You're dealing with an, a virus that has an unprecedented capability of spreading extremely rapidly. Hopefully this damn nightmare will end, but it's unlikely to be the last pandemic of our lifetimes because, well, the virus that could cause the next one is probably already out there. I'm Gustavo Ariano. You're listening to The Times, daily news from the LA Times. It's Wednesday, January 5th, 2022. There's hundreds of thousands of viruses in animals with the potential to infect humans. And our behavior, deforestation, urbanization, as well as climate change, it's pushing us into closer contact with them. Today, we're gonna offer an example, the troubling signs coming out of the Amazon rainforest. It used to be known as the lungs of planet Earth, but now the Amazon offers a warning to us all. My colleagues, Kate Linthicum and Emily Baumgartner, wrote a story about this. Kate is a foreign correspondent based in Mexico City, and Emily is a national correspondent focused on medical investigations. Both of Voces, welcome. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Emily, most scientists believe that the virus that causes COVID-19 originated in animals before spreading to humans. It's something called zoonotic spillover, and in our current era, it's happening a lot more frequently. What's driving this increase? Well, as our reporting indicates, it's pretty clear that changing land use is one of the reasons that this is becoming an increasing issue. We wrote specifically about deforestation, but there's various ways in which climate change and the change in use of various types of land across the world is sort of shrinking that buffer between animals and humans. And our reporting really looks at what's happening at that buffer space where animals and humans used to have a great deal of space between them. And as that area between them shrinks, there's more exchange of various pathways between them. Kate, you recently traveled to the Brazilian city of Maruaga, right in the heart of the Amazon rainforest, and you hung out with one family in particular, the Oliveira family. Who are they? What's their story? Yeah, basically, we wanted to see these places where deforestation means, you know, humans are living right up against nature and places where it's possible that we could see this kind of spillover and the next pandemic could emerge. So we spent time with a family of farmers who live in this little hamlet outside of a small city in the middle of the Amazon. They moved there 30 years ago. The matriarch of the family, the grandmother, literally cleared the forest by hand to build the first home for her and her multiple children. Those children now have children. (laughs) Some of them have children. Every time they need more space, you know, for another children's home, they just go into the forest and and burn a little more down and build their homes. They're really an example of a family who is living kind of at that perilous edge between humans, civilization, and nature. It sounds like the more the family grows, the further they push into the Amazon. Right. I mean, in in Brazil, for a lot of people, the Amazon forest and the right to destroy that forest is considered something of a birthright. 
you know, these are people who are living in really impoverished conditions a lot of times. And for them, the forest represents economic opportunity. You know, you can log it, sell the timber, plant crops, and eventually put cattle there. So for them, this is sort of a matter of life and death. Few of them were thinking about the potential consequences from a disease perspective. I've never been to Brazil, so when I think of the Amazon, I think lush rivers, wildlife, and green, green, green. Yeah, I mean, the Amazon is incredible. It is so dense with life. Every square meter has just thousands of of creatures living in it. You can hear it, you can smell it, you can feel the life in the jungle. So it's really quite alarming watching the jungle burn, which you see sort of in all directions as you travel through the Amazon, people clearing land for farms and for cattle. So tree stumps, ashes, smoke, basically devastation. Devastation. The Amazon rainforest is on fire. Some of the fires burning now in the Amazon were deliberately set to clear the rainforest for raising crops and cattle. An area of Amazon rainforest roughly the size of a football pitch is now being cleared every minute. What that means is that forest that could cover more than 2,000 pitches is just vanishing every day. And all the signs are that this rate of devastation will accelerate. Emily, deforestation, of course, is it's part of the human experience. We chop and clear and build and voila, we have a city, we have a settlement. But what's interesting about reading the story that you and Kate wrote was that there's this like a red line, a threshold that once we pass it, it becomes troublesome for the spread of zoonotic diseases. Right. So a lot of researchers will put that tipping point at about 40%. Once 40% of a land area has been destroyed, you start to see the intersection between animals and humans really sort of becoming problematic. And that's where, you know, the, the animals of the forest, various types of rodents that used to be quite distant from households, you start to see them in villages, you start to see them in communities, and you start to see the spread of viruses from those animals into the human populations that are there. And if you were to take blood samples from the animals and the humans in those regions, you'd start to see the overlap once you hit 40% of deforestation. Any idea what areas of the world are you seeing this? Well, I think one of the mistakes that a lot of us make and that virologists have made in the past and are beginning to learn from is that you really can't point to specific regions as the only places where viral spillover will happen. There are certainly problematic areas where we've seen many of the most consequential outbreaks in the past. Southeast Asia, you're seeing issues in Malaysia, obviously Brazil from our reporting. But there's no reason to be certain that this couldn't arise from somewhere like North America. The intersection between animals and humans just looks different in different types of societies. But I think it's important to point out that the mark of this problem is not necessarily that a country is developing. We'll be back after this break. Kate, we were talking about when a big part of the forest gets destroyed, the region can hit a tipping point and viruses start to spread easier. And the Oliveira family that you talked to, they're living in a real-time version of this. Right. You know, Zika virus emerged in Brazil and was incredibly destructive. 
It's called the Zika virus, and it only causes slight illness in those who get it. But there is growing evidence that links it to a rare condition in babies. Zika has been spreading quickly in parts of Latin America and the Caribbean. Zika comes from mosquito bites and is not spread among people. There are other, you know, mosquito-borne illnesses, such as malaria. Muitas vezes atingido por malária. I spoke to the father of one of the young girls that we profiled in the story, and he said he had had malaria dozens of times. A lot of people who live on the edge of wildlands like a forest, they also do a lot more hunting for food and have more contacts with wild animals that way. Absolutely, yeah. This family, you know, often eats wild animals that they catch from the jungle. I spoke to one young girl, a 10-year-old Dara lady, who kind of gushed over how delicious some of these animals are. And scientists have actually traced that kind of consumption of wild animals to, you know, pathogen spillover in recent years in Brazil. And Emily, just how risky is it to eat these animals like the paca, type of rodent that we just heard Dara Lady and her father describing? There is certainly risk associated with it because some of these animals are what we would call a reservoir host. Basically means that they're carrying the virus, but it's not making them sick. So you can't necessarily tell that it's a problematic virus until it moves into humans and creates an outbreak with symptoms among humans. I think a good example of that is the 2013 Ebola outbreak in West Africa is believed to have begun from the consumption of bushmeat in Guinea, which is a West African country. Ebola has rampaged across West Africa. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention urged Americans to avoid traveling to Guinea, Sierra Leone, and Liberia. There have been over 28,000 cases and 11,300 deaths. This is the largest outbreak of Ebola on record. It spread to two other countries and created an enormous amount of devastation, incredibly high fatality rate, even compared to coronavirus. But again, it's not the only behavioral issue that can arise. Many zoologists have begun to kind of rethink the way they frame this issue because the consumption of certain types of animals in certain types of cultures is not necessarily the only source of these types of global pandemics. A lot of the research on zoonotic spillover has so far focused on Asia and Africa, but Brazil worries scientists just as much. This is where you're seeing the type of loss of rainforest that Kate saw, and it's happening quickly. About 5.6 million acres cleared just in 2020 alone, according to a nonprofit called Amazon Conservation. That loss is about as large as the state of New Jersey. Right. So as those areas are reduced, the virus that mutates to create the next pandemic is already circulating and it's just a matter of of understanding what will happen over time as those land uses are changed. Kate, you've covered in the past Brazil's president, Jair Bolsonaro, a populist, pretty blunt, all about development. How has he contributed to the risk of pandemics emerging from Brazil? Bolsonaro has relaxed environmental protections across the board. Since taking office, Bolsonaro has encouraged development within the Amazon and dismissed global complaints about its destruction as a plot to hold back Brazil's agribusiness. He says developing the Amazon is the right of Brazilians and points out that more developed countries have had centuries to develop and use their natural resources 
And Brazil, even though we're now in a time when we understand the risks of climate change and pathogens spillover like this, also has that right. Yeah, the last time you were on The Times, you were talking about how Bolsonaro was at this global summit, COP26, on climate change. And he said, yeah, we, we could stop uh, deforestation, but the rest of the world has to pay us to do that. Right. Yeah, I think it's actually something that maybe we should consider. <laughs> we'll be back after this break. Scientists in Brazil are already worried about another spillover event. Kate, you met a veterinarian, Alessandra Nava, in a lab in Manaus. That's a metropolis in the center of the Brazilian state of Amazonas. What is she working on there? Yeah, so Manaus is a, a fascinating city. You fly for, you know, three or four hours over the Amazon, and all of a sudden you come into this great urban center of two million people that lies in the middle. So Manaus is a place that for a long time scientists have thought could be kind of a hot spot for future spillover events. So scientists like Alessandra Nava are basically trying to find the next virus before it causes problems in humans. So she spends her days sampling monkeys and other wild animals, taking blood samples and then banking them, basically creating a reserve a blood bank that shows what viruses are currently circulating in the wild. And so from a scientific perspective, mm -hmm. this is really valuable because here you can have access to animals that otherwise would be living in the forest and, and you wouldn't be able to, to observe and to sample. Exactly. Uh, that's what I'm saying. It's smart surveillance. Mm -hmm. So that if they do spill over to humans and if they become deadly or problematic, that we kind of have a leg up on that research. It's really important to make this active surveillance mm -hmm. in wildlife. And not just wildlife, but we have to understand the environmental triggers that, you know, mm -hmm. can lead to these outbreak situations. Scientists have said that if we had vast banks like this previously, we could have even gotten ahead of the latest coronavirus before it uh, became the pandemic that it has. Alessandra's project is just one example of a biobank, and Emily, on an even bigger scale, is the Global Virome Project. What's the goal there, and why do some researchers disagree with it? The goal is to essentially have a database of the 1.6 million different viruses that are believed to be living in animals across the world. The reason that it's controversial, or perhaps just the reason that many virologists don't think it's a very efficient approach and that it's overly ambitious, is that a very small percentage of these 1.6 million would ever jump over into humans and would ever cause disease in humans. So the more targeted approach that other researchers would be more in favor of would be sampling the humans living in these regions instead of sampling just the animals. So the humans living at this intersection, families like the family that Kate spent time with, as well as workers who traffic some of these uh, wild animals to wet markets, folks who are spending time in, in bat caves, various types of farmers who are interacting with lots of animals. And also I imagine telling humans to not you know, live in these risky behaviors, not live on the fringes of the Amazon or like continue to develop in places like that. 
Right. So part of the work here is convincing specific groups of people to adopt less risky behaviors. Some of those groups that work at these intersections just for their livelihood. But I'll also point out some of the nuance here that I think Kate's ground reporting captured really well is that the people who are living at this intersection, you know, sort of embody the fact that it's a very complex intersection between livelihood and public health. Nós precisamos sobreviver. We need to survive. Mm-hmm. E se nós temos que sobreviver, temos que sobreviver de quê? Do que nós temos. Sim. Um, Eu confesso. We need to survive from what we have. It's not only a geographic intersection, it's a figurative one. It's it's a place of great nuance where you're asking people who have for centuries fended for themselves to take into account the very unlikely but possible consequence for the rest of the world if their livelihood gets out of hand. And how does the Oliveira family feel about being in that intersection, Kate? And, and how is it living so close to the jungle? I mean, they say nobody understands the forest better than they do. Um, I love the forest. And there's some truth to that. You know, they literally arrived there 30 years ago and started clearing the forest by hand when COVID ravaged this swath of the Amazon. They turned to the jungle for help. You know, they basically used traditional medicines. You know, they eat off this land. They build homes off of it. They're sort of intricately connected uh, to the forest in so many ways. And while they've faced diseases in the past, like malaria, they've also seen the enormous benefits that it has. They're not people who are afraid of the forest. They think they sort of understand how to live with it. And uh, they're definitely not thinking about the next global pandemic, they're thinking about what to eat and how to eat that evening. Yeah, it's their livelihood. And that's something we have to think about when considering ways to avoid the next pandemic. We can't be all colonialism and tell whole groups of people to abandon their homes and everything they know anymore, you know? So Emily, how do scientists suggest we build communities that are more resilient to disease? A lot of researchers have agreed that it's very unlikely we'll ever prevent spillovers, that the most realistic approach to preventing pandemics is catching spillovers before they turn into outbreaks. So having very quick viral detection, very quick sequencing, very quick understanding of what the virus is and designing tests very quickly against it so you can contact trace at the site of the original outbreak and isolate those who are affected and stop it quickly. It's a Funny answer, because it sounds a bit fatalistic to say that, you know, spillovers can't be prevented, but spillovers have been happening for centuries and centuries and centuries, and only recently has the frequency of really devastating effects in humans really increased. So there is something to say about the behavioral element of this. It's not just about stopping that intersection between the species, but more about trying to to mitigate the consequences of it. And finally, Kate, the future, yeah, how is the next generation thinking about a future with more pandemics? Specifically, I'm thinking of that little girl you talked to, Dara Lady. Like, how is she thinking about living in the Amazon as it's being destroyed? So at 10 years old, you know, Dara doesn't have a a super clear understanding of all this science that we've just explained. But I was struck by the fact that she did have kind of an intuitive sense, I think, of the dangers of 
destroying the jungle, and she sort of mourned it as she watched uh, a swath of the Amazon burn in front of her. Yeah, I understand a little bit of Brazilian. So she's saying that uh, she gets a little sad because the forest is something she's loved since she was little, and this deforestation is destroying nature. Kate, Emily, thank you so much for this conversation. Thank you. Thanks for having us. And that's it for this episode of The Times, daily news from the LA Times. Tomorrow, are left-wing politics having a moment in South America? We head to Chile to find out. Our show is produced by Shannon Lynn, Denise Guerra, Kasha Brasalian, Melissa Kaplan, Ashley Brown, and Angel Carreras. Our engineer is Mario Diaz. Our editor is Lauren Rabb. Our executive producers are Hasmin Aguilera and Shani Hilton. And our theme music is by Andrew Eben. Like what you're listening to? Then make sure to follow The Times on whatever platform you use. Don't make us the Puccia Podcasts. I'm Gustavo Ariano. We'll be back tomorrow with all the news and desmadre. Gracias. <laughs>